First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. In the reading Bill gave us, a poet describes the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, which this year begins a week from Wednesday. You're asked to stand and bow your head, consider all the harm you've caused in a year. This happens in the synagogue, not in some private, safe corner of your house, not while you're out walking your dog in the dark before the sun comes up where nobody you know is gonna see you with your rumpled clothes and your crumpled conscience. It does not take place within the confidential confines of the confessional. Unlike almost all the other Jewish holidays, both joyful and somber, which are centered in the home around a table, Yom Kippur is observed in the temple with the whole congregation publicly, visibly, right out loud, confessing all the mistakes of the whole year past. You're asked to stand your head, stand and bow your head, consider the harm you've caused, the respect you've withheld, the anger misspent, the fear spread, all the callous, cruel, stubborn, joyless sins in your alphabet of woe. We're not talking here about crimes against humanity for the most part. This is mostly all the little stuff that we all do all the time. You're asked to survey your own damage and own it so that you can be forgiven. And in this moment, it's not even about other people. It's about God or the holy or yourself inside. Well, it's hard for us to picture that especially here in a space like this that's dedicated to a theological tra tradition that vanquished centuries ago, the doctrine of original sin, which was a good move, but which then inadvertently made it harder for us to talk about or even acknowledge other kinds of brokenness, unoriginal sin, especially our own. You're asked to stand and bow your head consider harm you may have caused. And that's probably a good practice, right? At least once a year, once a day. It's hard though, and it gets harder. The poet says, you're asked to believe in the spark of your own divinity and the purity of the words of your mouth and the memories of your heart. You're asked to believe that no matter what you have done to yourself or other people, morning will come, the night will fade, to believe in the utter sweetness of your life. Well, sometimes it's hard to imagine. It's hard to believe in our own divinity, sometimes our own humanity. And I know it's hard because I know it in myself sometimes. And because people come and tell me all the time in the confines of the confessional. We strut around Unitarians looking so brash, but I know. Our belief in our own worth does not come easy. Shame is so insidious and contagious and toxic in our culture. It is hard sometimes, I know, to muster the confidence that we can change and grow and get better, be better from the premise of holy imperfection. And when we doubt ourselves like that, we know 
our anxiety leaks out all over the floor, all over everybody in all kinds of unholy ways. The days of awe in the Jewish calendar are ordered in this, what feels like a reverse way in some ways, so that Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which is today, comes first, and it's followed then by the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, 10 days later. Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of the world. It's all apples and honey and challah. It remembers the creation of the world, a big bang birthday. Every year the world begins all over again, and for 10 days leading up to Yom Kippur, you have to come to terms with whether you're fit to live in that new world. You wrestle with God, you wrestle in your mind as other people come asking you for pardon for all the ways they've wronged you. Some of them sincere, some of them maybe not, some of them deserving, some absolutely not. You have to make your own choices. You're not obliged ever to forgive anybody, but you are obliged to think about it. Mostly, you wrestle with your own conscience. Everybody, every store clerk, every colleague, every relative that you've betrayed, injured, slandered, slighted, even if they never knew it, even by mistake. And you consider what comes next, what has to happen now to make your own self whole in ways that other people are never even going to see or know about. It's the hardest thing, I think, forgiving ourselves, which requires looking at ourselves as if you're looking at your body naked in the mirror and blessing what you see. Try it. <laughs> it is about discerning the difference between this is this thing I did, and this is who I really know I am, and I want to get back there. We do damage because we're lazy, selfish, clueless, dishonest, not evil generally, but human. If you're like me, maybe you're not, but if you are, you're arrogant, ignorant, irreverent, cowardly, duplicitous, entitled, ungrateful, and mean. At least a couple times a day, right? Maybe you're not. Maybe I just said too much. I don't know. <laughs> but you're also compassionate, courageous, flexible, and good. We have the capacity to be pretty good. And I can see all these little thought bubbles now pinging up above your heads. Hey, whoa, careful. I don't come to this place to be beaten over the head by guilt. That's why I'm here. Maybe so, and maybe we're not going to all stand up once a year, bowing our heads and fasting and reciting prayers in an ancient language about atonement. But my guess is that most of us, each of us, has come, maybe every time we come, seeking some kind of silent blessing, seeking a space, a moment, a place where we can lay down what we carry. We come seeking assurance from within, from among, from beyond, that we can begin again in love, that we can't foreclose the future, that by turning and turning from all of our stumbles to our brightest aspiration, by turning and turning, we can still and always come round right. The days of awe insist that the time for now is now for this, to renew and review your accounts, to pay off your debts, don't wait. The interest will 
accrue. Before the gate has been closed, says the poet Yehudi Amakai, writing of the work of Yom Kippur. Before the last question is posed, before I am transposed, before the weeds fill the gardens, before there are no pardons, before the concrete hardens, before all the flute holes are covered, before things are locked in the cupboard, before the rules are discovered, before the conclusion is planned, before God closes God's hand, before we have nowhere to stand. I don't know about you, but what I know about the practice of atonement is this, uncomfortable. When I realize I've wronged somebody on purpose or by accident, when by some miracle, I realize that the fault was mine and I'm willing to say so, which in itself is a whole process. But if I get to that point of accepting the blame, the responsibility, it is not a good feeling. It can go down like this. First, I am so sorry. I'm just flooded with remorse and regret and embarrassment and shame to the point where I can't bear to hold it. All I want to do is make it right, confess it, admit it, apologize, move on. I want that discomfort gone. And that kind of atonement, fast track atonement, is a brand of cheap grace. It shifts the weight of the pain, the burden of work from my shoulders to the other person who I need to forgive me right away. And you may remember this from childhood saying, I said I was sorry, what more do you want? We wanna skip over the hard, slow work of transformation. Why? Because we're scared of what we'll turn into. In recent years, wise teachers have been helping us understand now the difference between intention and impact. And again, our childhood experience maybe can be instructive. I didn't mean to protest the young child, me, when I knocked my brother down by accident on my way to the cookies on the counter. I didn't mean to, and that's good. But if he's still bleeding here on the floor, he's probably much more concerned, and rightly so, about the impact of my mistake than my intention. True atonement asks me to own both, my intention and my impact, to acknowledge both and then let go of control. My brother may resent me forever. He may dust himself off and move on and eat all the cookies himself and forget it ever happened. Those are his choices. My work is different. And maybe now I think about what it means to be the bigger, older, stronger one. Maybe I think about it for 50 years after the fact. Maybe I think of how to let him know I'm sorry and I care and I'll do better. And maybe he dies as my brother did before I could tell him this story and all the other way more important stories. The time to begin is always right now. Always right now. Atonement requires this courageous curiosity. What's going to happen to me? What will become of me if I admit I did this thing and everybody knows it, that I caused this harm? And then tell the people who were impacted, expecting nothing in return and promising then to myself first that I'm going to try with all my heart and soul and strength to be different, to be about the work of transformation, 
which is a risk and also a bright proposal. What would happen? What would become of us if that was what we meant with our apologies? Patricia Williams is a journalist and a lawyer. For years, she's taught public policy at Columbia University, writing about restorative justice, the beautiful practice of mediation. She says, in contrast to those cultures where apology is linked to real sorrow and intense contrition, acknowledgement, confessions, explanation, acts of repentance, appeals for mercy, and the restless search for balance, in contrast, ours is a culture of stiff upper lips and quick closure, stoic pats on the back. Forgive and forget, be forgiven and forget, and that takes care of it. But apologizing, she says, without acknowledging the broken bones is what dysfunctional families do. She was speaking about society as a whole, the way that a whole nation holds its history or doesn't. So... A larger example. A couple of years ago, the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates spoke before a House panel on H.R. 40. This is the bill that would establish a federal commission to study the possibility of reparations for American slavery. The bill is named for the unfulfilled promise of the federal government to 3.9 million enslaved people when emancipation became law every one of them was to receive 40 acres of arable land and a mule to make a start. It never happened. So HR 40 is not about writing a one-time government check to every known descendant of every known person enslaved between 1619 and 1865. It's not about giving everybody a farm and a donkey in 2022. It's not even about new programs to help repair all the reverberating, ever-mutating damage of slavery. It's not about cheap grace. Tanohasi Coates asks, what would happen to us as a people, all of our descendants, if we just acknowledged the sin of slavery and its impact, its continuing impact on Black people, on white people, poor people, rich people, the continuing festering poisonous impact? Majority Leader McConnell refuted that testimony, saying nobody now alive bears any responsibility, how could they, for anything that happened centuries ago. But the truth is, we do bear it together because the impact resounds to the lasting benefit of some of us and the deadly detriment of others. Coates said, enslavement, quoting here, shaped every crucial aspect of American life, so that by 1836, more than 600 million, almost half of the U.S. economy, derived directly from cotton produced by the million-odd slaves. By the time the enslaved were emancipated, they comprised the largest single asset in America, economic asset, $3 billion in 1860 dollars, more than all the other assets of the country combined. There's no American institution, public or private, without a foundation in slavery. That's what the country just is. What I'm talking about, said Coates, is more than recompense for past injustice, more than a handout, a payoff, or hush money, a reluctant bribe, cheap grace. 
What I'm talking about is a national conversation that would lead to spiritual renewal. Perhaps no number, he says, can fully capture the multi-century plunder of Black people in our country. Perhaps the number is just so big it can't even be imagined, let alone paid out. But the idea of reparations scares us, he said, not because we lack the ability to pay, but it threatens something deeper, our sense of who we are. This is what scares us. Reparations by which, he said, I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography, that's the price we have to pay to see ourselves squarely in the mirror. We have to imagine a new country. In the end, he said, wrestling publicly with the questions matters as much as, if not more than, any answers or any money we could produce. An America that asks what it owes its citizens is improved and humane. An America that looks away is ignoring not just the sins of the past, but the sins of the present and the certain sins of the future. More important than any check made out to any African-American person, conversation is what it is about. Our maturation as a country out of a childhood myth of innocence into a wisdom worthy of our founders. It's not about paying reparations, this bill. It's only about opening the conversation. And that bill has languished for more than 10 years. What languishes in your spirit, in our country, in our families, in our relationships, our friendships, here in church? It's always and always about opening the conversation. And the time is always right now. So I want to invite you again into a spirit of meditation. Just take a deep breath. And be comfortable in your space. Close your eyes if you want to. Just breathe there. And bring into your conscious mind somebody against whom you currently hold some resentment. Let's take a moment to decide who that's going to be. Could be somebody you see every day, somebody you rarely see, could be somebody who's died or somebody very much alive. Bring one person into your mind who has slighted you, injured you, wronged you, and breathed you. Is this somebody you would ever be able to forgive? Is it somebody you want to forgive? There's no judgment in the question. Either way, imagine holding your resentment not inside your chest, but in your own two hands before you. How heavy is it? How much does it weigh? And is there any way you could lay it down and walk more lightly. Breathe in and out and let that person drift away. Now bring into your conscious mind somebody you have wronged, 
And take a moment to decide who it is. Could be somebody you see every day, somebody you rarely see. Could be someone who's died or somebody very much alive. Just bring one person into your mind whom you've wronged and breathe deeply. And in your mind, come before that person, speak their name, and say, I wronged you. This is what I did. And in your mind, say exactly what it was. Speak their name and say, I ask for your forgiveness. And breathe in and breathe out and let that person drift away. And finally, imagine you're looking in a mirror at your own face exactly as it is with all your stories written all over it. Take a breath and look into your own eyes and smile. And in your mind, speak your own name and just say, forgive and be forgiven. Thank you.